Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and a parent of two young adults, one of which is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Um, I'm really happy uh, to have you all here today. And today's episode, um, I am uh, thrilled to have Rebecca Lake here with me. And welcome, Rebecca. Yes, and um, I will let you introduce yourself in a second, but I always like to tell people how I found you. And so, um, as everyone knows, I'm an Instagram user, and I did my first interview podcast with Dan Jones of the Aspie World. And one day, I'm just kind of scrolling, and I see you, you and he having a live stream. And so I was like, oh my goodness, who's this person he's talking to? And I was like, wow, uh, this seems really interesting and I loved uh, the conversation and I was like let me see if you know I can reach out and then in doing some more digging I saw that you also started an organization called Endless Abilities and that you call yourself the Spectrum Advocate so I was like "Ooh, definitely yes and so I reached out and you were kind enough to answer me back Um, and yeah so that's how uh, Rebecca's here with us today but uh, Rebecca, can you give a little background on yourself? Yeah, so thank you again so much for having me. Um, I am Rebecca Lake. I go by Beck, the Spectrum Advocate on Instagram. Um, I kind of use that platform to raise awareness, educate, promote inclusion and equality uh, for individuals living with autism and other disabilities, really. Um, I've also used the platform to essentially connect um, families individuals living with disabilities and uh, practitioners or educators in the field uh, while trying to bring all of those uh, outsiders in and also educate them so that um, we're not so much outsiders anymore, if that makes any sense. Um, And then my baby, which I always say it's my baby, is Endless Abilities. I founded uh, the organization about two two and a half years back with uh, almost three now. Uh, a colleague of mine named Fadi Bashara. He is my, he's our BCBA, uh, my partner. And yeah, we started the organization um, with the hopes to start as an in-home kind of organization for ABA therapy. And it soon grew into a clinic within six months of us, uh, you know, incorporating and getting it up and going. So we've kind of been working at that for the last three years and we're super proud of it. We've come a really long way, made it through COVID so far, and yeah, I'm just continuing to, um, I guess, try to make a difference best way I can and be as involved in the community as possible. So that's, uh, it's really interesting because I know when we first chatted before this, um, I was asking you about your organization. You did bring up the ABA, and um, I know we, t- we we had a good chat about 
well, wait, some people, when they hear ABA, they get really anxious or they're not really sure or they're like, well, what's all the talk about? And I hear it's good. I hear it's not good. Um, here in the United States, insurance uh, insurance providers will really only cover um, ABA therapy as a as a intervent as one intervention I should say for autism specifically, um, so it it can get like a little muddy and I know we started having this conversation around kind of demystifying ABA and you were willing to take that challenge on with me. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've uh, you know of course being someone who's running an organization completely centered around ABA, I've I've had many people be a little bit weary about walking in our doors. Um, either having had poor experiences or just simply researching ABA. Um, I often share this one success story. It's a YouTube video. It's, it's awesome. Of this uh, little boy in Hawaii who uh, was nonverbal, you know, quite behavioral, lacked a lot of, I guess he just, he wasn't reaching his milestones at the age that he was. And so parents put him in ABA and they recorded his journey along like six years, six or seven years. And, how he was just a completely, I don't want to say he was a different kid. He was the same kid, but he, he had acquired so many skills and he grew into himself and he just, it was it's such a beautiful story to see the, see ABA in action and see just what it did for this child's, um, this child specifically. So there's definitely a lot of myths about it. Um, you know, some of it being that ABA is only used for kids with autism, um, which is, where parents also get worried because they they think about that stigma and if people know that my child's an ABA um, are they going to start raising questions is he going to be treated the same he or she can be treated the same in school so on and so forth but yeah ABA is not only used with kids with autism I actually um, did a project not many people know this but I I was a part of a project uh, here in Ontario across about one uh, one or two regions where we practice ABA in the dementia population and mental health in geriatrics. And it was incredible. We actually, we had a short, it was a short project, but we weren't able to, it was in the beginning of me starting the company. So I wasn't able to continue to sign on, but we were making really good uh, head, headway and, and we were seeing improvements and the treatment was working. So you can use, uh, ABA can be applied in addictions, you know, uh, pet therapy, organizational development within the workplace, criminal forensics. If anyone's watched uh, that Mindhunter show, <laughs> yes, Sports. yeah, I like that yeah. one. <laughs> it's an amazing, and yeah, and every single time I, when I first started watching that, it all clicked to me. Like ABA was just like they were just throwing out. Uh, it's, it's all around behavioral science, um, but it could be used in sports medicine, all that stuff. So it's not just for kids with autism. Um, you know, I think a lot of educators also have are weary of it because they think educators. What by say when I say educators, I mean more so like the you know teachers in the school system that aren't overly familiar with it, um, or they haven't been exposed to it or seen how ABA um, really works or how it does benefit some kids because ABA is used differently by every person. Like whether you're a parent who's trying to practice ABA. Um, you know, programs with your kid or you're an ABA practitioner or behavioral therapist. Everyone approaches it differently. 
right? Um, and I think that's part of the um, the interesting thing about this. And and um, and I'll circle back to that in a second. I think we can kind of weave it together. Uh, you mentioned the stigma, right, and parent concern. I think um, one of the I think one of the pieces to that stigma or slash parent concern is that ABA is the same thing for everyone, right? And so it's, it's you know, you create your programming and there's discrete trials, which I don't know if, I mean, I have talked about this in the past, but, but there's, you know, discrete trials and you repeat those trials 10 times and then you come back and, you know, there's like this very prescribed routine. And I think, I mean, I was, that's how I started my um, entry into education, you know, 22 years ago. So um, that is also what I kind of only knew. And I did see that it was helping many young children. But then on the other hand, I was like, this feels a little like too prescriptive for me. And I'm not really sure how I was feeling about that, right? But but what you're saying here, and I know other, you know, behavioral therapists, and it's, no, it's not really just that. And there's so many different ways to apply it. And I do, I do know that. And so I really, um, I'm looking to you to help educate me and my audience a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I, I think what, what we have to remember is that ABA is a methodology. It's not, um, it's not aligned to a specific treatment, and that's where people kind of think it's just a treatment. And, you know, we only use discrete trial training, and we only use – there's so many different types of data we take. Data is just the piece that shows us what's working and what's not. So ABA is a science that is made up or of seven, seven dimensions that are meant – to help the ABA practitioner or the therapist make decisions when it comes to that programming and when it comes to teaching their, their clients. So that's where people often get mistaken is um, it's not a one size fits all approach. And every clinician is going to implement ABA so much differently. Like one senior, I don't know what you guys call it there, but um, our one BCBA, one behavioral analyst is going to make should be making different programs for all of their child because every child's different and they're going to teach and use different approaches while following the ABA methodology and it's there's it's just uh, it's such a broad broad I guess science like there's just so much to it what you you don't have not one dimension of, of ABA doesn't tell you this is how you teach how to uh, tie your shoelaces. There's like uh, 10 ways at least to tie your shoelaces. <laughs> so that one right. way may not work for another child, if that right. makes any sense. No, so, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And and so can you um, describe to me a little bit about, at least for your organization, how your programming works there? Yeah. So uh, we have, oh my, we've got a such a great team. Um, pretty much what happens is you come in and uh, as a parent, I'm going to try to paint a picture of being a parent coming in. Oh, please. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> you're coming in, you're looking for therapy. Um, you know, every clinic does it differently. Some clinics will say, when you come to us, you gotta, you gotta commit to 10 hours a week. You gotta commit to 15, 20 hours a week, or, you know, we don't take on clients. We don't do that. Um, we want to, we believe in being able to help as many people as we possibly can. There's not one person that we don't think we can't help. At least that's our attitude. Um, so you come in and we get to know you a little bit. We get to see kind of 
what your goals are, what you're hoping to gain out of it, um, what you already know about ABA. I'm often that first person that will chat with parents and just kind of, I'll talk about it for, I'll talk about ABA for days and just kind of, <laughs> I know even if they don't want to hear it, I want them to hear it because I want them to understand what it is that they're coming into, right? And what sure. ABA is really about. So, you know, we'll have that conversation. And then from there, I'll set them up with their therapy team if they're ready to go. They can send to services. They they want to, you know, let's try this ABA thing. So we have a team of, um, I'm kind of, I'm going to go through the hierarchy. So at the top of the pyramid, we have our BCBAs. Um, I'm, we have a different kind of structure in our company with our clinical directors and everything like that. But you, you have a clinical supervisor, which is typically your BCBA, your board certified behavior analyst. That person um, has an undergrad, usually in psychology or something of the sort. And then after that, they go into their master's. They can have master's in early childhood education, master's in um, applied behavior analysis, master's in disability studies, specializing in applied behavior analysis. Um, and that's where, like I was saying earlier, those different approaches come into play. Then once they finish their two-year master program, they then have to do supervision under another BCBA uh, and then write their um, exam to become, to get that certification. So it's, it's a long, long journey. And that person is that, you know, ABA guru at the top that is supporting their team under them who's uh, either implementing the programs or implementing and also trying to get to the top as well to become a BCBA. So that BCBA will supervise um, the person under them, which is what we call our senior therapist. That's our, you know, seasoned uh, instructor therapist that's now become a supervisor who gets to assess and write the programs, analyze the data, write the programs, learn from their BCBA, do their supervisions as well. Like they, they have, it's such a collaborative team where you're everyone right. learning from everyone, you know? Right. And, and here in the U.S., it's very similar. Um, and and yeah, it's it's pretty much the same thing. It does take a long time to learn and get certified um, and working with a lot of uh, clients and working with a lot of educators. And here, many places will call it like the lead teacher um, or the head teacher. You know, there's all different things. But um, but yeah, it sounds very, very similar. Yeah, it's it, that's it's nice because it usually it typically what I found it is it typically is across different um like internationally mm-hmm. now the titles have been different I've noticed that just like you were saying <laughs> with lead teacher yes we, yeah we have underneath the senior therapist we've got our lead instructor therapists which are those uh our veteran uh, instructor therapists I'm so used to saying ITs but I'm trying not to use short form <laughs> um and then under them we have our instructor therapists who are um implementing all the programming taking the data and engaging doing that one-on-one with the child um so it's very collaborative our senior therapists they have to supervise so they have to be present for 10 percent at least of what that child is getting in terms of one-to-one. So if you're doing 10 hours a week, you're seeing the senior therapist is coming to sit in on your session for one at least one hour a week. Um, now, we typically, when it comes to programming, um, some organizations, it, honestly, it's, it really depends on, it's so different across each provider. Some places have drives where you can just pull um 
pull programs from there and then you just throw that in for your kiddo we don't do that we we make up our own programs for each child oh wait so so tell let's tell me a little bit about that because um yeah. are you saying like pre predefined programming and yeah I just want to be clear when we're talking about programming um what we're saying and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm missing something it's sort of the uh, the structure of how this particular individual is going to be taught for a right. designated period of time. And, and it can be, you know, we would say if we were looking at a, an indiv- individualized education plan for school, it should be also very customized, similar to that type of a document. Um, and so uh, just like there are for IEPs, unfortunately, there are databases where you could pull set and prescribed goals. So I didn't know that that actually existed sometimes for um, this type of programming as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So we we completely um, individualize every program to... And this is kind of what takes us some time to get our programs in because we don't want to just um, pull it from a random drive and, you know, we'll try different things. We'll absolutely try programs across different kiddos for sure. Um, We use, like, we have a template that we follow that kind of guides the senior therapists and clinicians to put what your mastery criteria is. What is your, um, you know, what does your error correction look like? What is, uh, what's the description of the program and how should it be run? And that's to clarify it so that every person that's running the program is doing it the same or the right way, whatever is, is expected of, because if you, if you're teaching me something and your way is working, but then I go and see another therapist or another person and they try to teach me that same skill, but I have no idea what it is. Like they're teaching me it to me differently. I'm just going to get right. confused. And oftentimes that's where you see those gaps in the system where a program either isn't defined appropriately or it's not clear enough for two people. Like you should be able to have two people or three people look at that program and be able to understand exactly how to run it right? Um, right. just by reading that. And that's important in ABA or in any type of teaching, right? When you're trying to learn sure. something new. Um, but when I say like, we don't like to pull so much from a drive, it's, You know, we want to get to that child's level, understand how it is that they learn. We've had so many different learners and different kids. It's, I keep saying this, but it's really not a one size fits all approach. You can't just throw in a bunch of, oh, he's three years old. So these are going to be the programs that he works with. (laughs) No, (laughs) like you got it. We've done, we've done the craziest programs too, that you wouldn't think like, I mean, I'm trying to think of something, but um, well, like, as you're as you're thinking, I think it's funny because it's also like if we want to teach right a three year old letter identification, right? There could be so many different ways to do that, and I think there may be, um, you know, if we were looking at a preschool or a nursery school program, we would, you know, all the students kind of get taught the same way, but a really good teacher will kind of mix it up and try different approaches because you have your different learners in the room. And so, but there might be some kids who consistently need to learn it in one way and a different kid might need to learn it a different way. We're really talking about the same thing here, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, we've taken pride in that and um, our, our team is very collaborative. We do regular trainings, you know, so each, each, uh, instructor therapist is kind of under their own 
uh, I like to call them squads kind of thing. So you have one uh-huh. senior therapist, one clinician who has like her seven or eight um, team members. So they collaborate with her. And then, you know, you, you can rotate as you go, but it's good to just be under the one clinician so you don't get mixed up with different approaches. Um, and yeah, it's just been, for us, mm-hmm. it's, it seemed to run really smoothly. And like I said, if, if a parent brings up a bizarre program or a bizarre you know, something that they want us to teach their child as long as it's, it's within our ethical boundaries and it's going to be socially significant to them or socially relevant, then absolutely we'll teach it. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of step in a little bit more here. So if we're talking about people who are having really struggling with the concept of ABA, I think some of the areas where that comes in is one with the number of hours, right? So um, here for early identification, we say, you know, the research shows 25 hours per week. And so this would be in a population under the age of five, right? So, right, right. Just in thinking about that, you go, oh, wow, that's like a a lot of time with programming. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what are your thoughts about that? I'm not sure what your experience is. I really love that you said, you know, we won't, we won't take, we won't say no to someone who can't commit to X number of hours, right? Yeah, but we'll also be honest from the get-go. So if you come to us and you say, hey, we have, you know, these five goals we want, um, uh, I don't know, let's just say toilet training, um, communicating with others, social skills, joint attention, sharing. Uh, we want him to learn math, all, all these things in, in <laughs> six hours. We'll be honest and say, listen, we can't accomplish those goals in that amount, like with right. with, th- with six hours a week, right? You can right. do so much when you have 25 hours a week. And I think people look at it as this isn't going to be um, like, this is going to be traumatic for my child. Or, like you should never have your therapy should be fun. And I think right. that's where we also have this, this perception, right? Um, mm-hmm. That they're coming in and they assume that they're just sitting at a table and only doing token boards all day. Some <laughs> that's happened in the past with some providers it has. Some that literally yes. you're, you're, I've been in an, in that environment and yep. that's where you got to be weary and you have to get to know that, that provider when you're walking those doors, like ask those questions Make sure you should be able to observe sessions. You should be like with consent, of course, um, and without breaching the confidentiality confidentiality of other clients, because you're not able to just come in and observe other kids' sessions. But your provider should be able to want, or your clinician that you're working with, want you to see what you're doing with their child. There should never be any secrets. So you know, I think what what I'm kind of I, I went off track there a little bit, but. You shouldn't be coming in and just who's going to want to sit at a table for four hours straight and get one hour breaks every single five to nine. Like nobody's going to like that. So if you're in an environment where your therapist is creative and collaborative and is doing some natural environment teaching, maybe teaching on a walk when you go outside, we're thinking, you know, thinking on the spot and not just being confined to one environment, then the child should enjoy going to therapy. And also making sure that the reinforcers are, you're not just working with one. Like I only get to work for iPad for 25 hours out of the week. And that's all (laughs) I care about. And that's also finding a clinician that, or a team that's going to um, find 
you know, utilize other ways to find other motivators. Instead of saying, well, he likes iPads, so that's all he's working for. Hey there, this is Ily again, and I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a moment and let you know that in addition to bringing you great interviews and content here on the Autism in Real Life podcast, I also offer online courses, workshops, and customized coaching. So if you're a family member, an educator, or a part of an organization looking for support or autism education, I would love to work with you to help meet your specific needs. Check out my website at thespectrumstrategy.com or email me at ilia, I-L-I-A, at thespectrumstrategygroup.com. You can also message me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. So I look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Yeah, I think you hit on something really strong here and, and a couple things. One is um, when you're talking about, you know, in a natural environment, um, I think a lot of people do have this, you know, image and, and I have worked in a similar setting. So it is sitting at the little table with the, you know, the student, you know, two feet away from you or at arm's length, maybe not these days here, but, but you know, two, two feet away from you, um, knee to knee sometimes. And it's that, right? And then it is, it's that 15 minute break every hour or after so many trials. Uh, and I love that you're saying going for a walk and implementing what the initial, <laughs> what the actual, right, behavioral intervention is or programming is um, within a natural environment or within something that they would do on a day-to-day. Can you talk a little bit more about, can you even like maybe give me an example of two ways of teaching the same skill, right? Where it would be that like across the table, you know, method, and then let's go out into nature and do it differently. And I understand you're not, you know, you're not a therapist per se certified, but yeah, um, yeah, let me me touch on that. I'm not a, just for anyone listening, I'm not a board certified behavior analyst. I've worked as an you know, I started out as an, as an instruct, uh, instructor therapist, behavior therapist, you might call it. Um, and I, I did it for a few years. And that's what drove me to become or to, to start the company. Um, but right. I did not go all the way like I just was talking about with getting my BCBA certification. And I don't actually implement the programming anymore. I have wonderful, wonderful staff that do. And I get to learn from them every day as we go and see how they implement. So um the you know teaching at a table as opposed to natural i mean what i always say is there's always every minute is a is a teaching opportunity so Mm -hmm. if i'm if i'm sitting at a table and um i'm teaching a child um to identify an animal let's just say right Mm -hmm. just very simple i'm gonna keep it very simple we can teach that in so many different ways across an array of three where they have to point um, you know, identify by pointing at, you know, show me the dog and they have to point at the dog. And then you do a few trials, you reinforce and they learn, oh, I, you know, I either got praise or I got access to, to something I'm motivated by a toy or something um, after I, I gave the um, correct response. Then you go outside and you're on a walk and you apply that same, um, I guess, skill or whatever you're trying to teach them outside hey what do you see there a dog and it's not Mm -hmm. always I think another thing is uh where where we see the like roboticness is you know and I've always said this when you're teaching you want it to be as natural as possible when you're teaching 
a child. So if we ever hear our therapists sounding like robotic or they're repeating the same sentence, even when you're doing error correction, um, that is a dog. Instead of always doing the same words in the same sentence when you're correcting, you should always switch it up. Like, okay, bud, let's try it again. Show me the dog. Where is the dog? Things like that where you're kind of switching up your SD and you're not just you know, throwing out the same sentence over and over because then it's just at that point rote memory, you know? They're just going to memorize everything you're saying. Um, No, and I really love that because I think, uh, you know, in some, in the instance, in in the program that I was in, that was actually how I was taught, right? It's say the same sentence in this way, in this tone, and it felt just very... Um, I don't know, unnatural, just like we said, it just felt like this is not the way we, you know, behave in in the regular world. And um, when you're talking about changing up the language a little bit, that's actually part of the generalization process, right, of being able to apply the knowledge given different set of circumstances that may present themselves in the outside world. Yeah. So I think um, it just makes so much more sense. And I think more people are, or I would say more practitioners are leaning more towards this methodology. I would really hope so. (laughs) Um, Because it just makes more sense, I think. Yeah. And you mentioned the reinforcers. Uh, you know, I remember I, we talk about, I think we talked about this with another educator about the token economy, right? Where they <laughs> earn tokens or they then they get to go to like the prize box or maybe yeah. it is earning the, the, uh, the iPad. But I have found so often with um, not just really young kids, but with a lot of students of all ages, right? Reinforcers get old. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think absolutely, absolutely. It's yeah. and that's something that that we. That's where you can't let your creativity die as an educator and as a therapist. You know, you also should be having fun with your child. You can be that reinforcement. It doesn't just have like if you have a gr- good enough relationship or rapport with your client that um, they're working for tickles or they're working for you know playing a game with you. That's even better. Right, right. Well, then that to me, that's building up the socialization piece as well that, you know, many of our kids would struggle with. So I I think that building that connection, I know I, um, as we were chatting earlier, uh, I used to sing. And so I used to teach music like a young children's music program. And so when I was doing this type of work, I wanted to incorporate music as you know a reinforcer (laughs) and I was told no by so many people and I was like there was one particular student I worked with and he loved singing and I was like why why can't I use songs (laughs) as a reinforcer absolutely should be able to and it made no sense to me and you know it's many years later so I could say I did it anyway (laughs) but Yeah. <laughs> but, Whatever gets that person motivated to learn or to reach achieve that goal, why not use it? Think outside right. the box. Right. You know, right. there's and there's so many things in our world and so many things we can do. We we should never restrict. If you're restricting your even as a parent, like if you're restricting yourself to just those few things, that's then you're you're restricting your child to it at that point because you're not really exposing them to those other experiences or other things that may be reinforcing um, right. for them, you know? You and so how it. do you, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how do you work with, um, because I've also encountered the opposite thing where I've worked with parents who want a very structured, very regimented, um, you know, same, a lot of sameness. <laughs> um, and, and I was like, well, we need to have like a little bit of room. And sometimes they don't, I don't know, I guess they don't understand totally where maybe I was coming from and I didn't have the best tools at the time to explain it. So if you're, you know, when you're talking to your families that are, that bring their children to you, um, what kind of, or is there like coaching or training that you do with them? Yeah, so we do, we do parent coaching. We take pride in that. Um, We actually also do a lot of behavior consultation where we come in and we'll do, we'll have the senior therapist go in and do, you know, work with the child and the parent and see how they interact in the home, see how um, sometimes behavior, obviously the child's going to act a little different knowing that there's another person in the house. Um, but the more hours you put in and the more comfortable they get, the more you'll see their, their true colors. So um, we also, when we're doing the ABA specifically, uh, if it's in clinic or in home, we, like I was saying earlier, we like to show the parents. So we are always sending photos and pictures to our parents, like specifically only that, that parent. We have a tool that we use online mm-hmm. um, that protects all of our data. And then we give them homework and we give and we follow up to make sure, did you practice these skills? Did you? I was going to um, ask you that. Yeah, yeah. Because consistency, yeah. right, from from the school room, I'm going to use that, to home, um, right, that alone can be an interesting transition. Yeah, we've had many parents that have been like, no, I want it this way. But at the end of the day, they're seeking us as clinicians, right? They're looking, it's their, it's, it's the BCBA's duty to do what they know or implement what they know is ethically correct and, and what they've learned and how they're supposed to implement ABA in that, in those given situations. So, you know, you just hope that, that you can get through the parent and educate them. And honestly, you can never be against your, your team. You, the parents are on the team as well. And if you have a parent that's just, you know, not willing to be flexible or not willing to learn, then it's ultimately not gonna, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna benefit the child. So right. you have to have that integrity as well as a clinician to say, like, I, I, I know it's your child, but at, in this situation, I think this is a ethically sound or I think this is best. Let's try this. And if not, we'll try it another way um, because we're not going to implement something that we don't also feel we can because of what the parent wants. Right. So sure. Cause then you could have, I mean, you could totally have setbacks, um, mm-hmm. with that as well. But, um, so I guess another question I would think about, because I've, we've talked with, um, parents and, you know, I've also talked to OTs, uh, occupational therapists. I'm trying not to use the lingo too, um, and physical and physical therapists and speech therapists. Right. And, and many of our kids are going to all of these different types of, you know, practitioners. And for parents, sometimes it is, it can be a full-time job just getting your kid to these different appointments. And then um, sometimes it's like, okay, so now when you go home, my, the speech therapist had me do this, the social skills group wants me to do this. And now my ABA 
choices to do this. Um, what's kind of the coaching a little bit for parents around that? I mean, I know you just said a little bit, but um, I know I've coached many parents with, look, you have to prioritize the things, right? Like you have to look at all of the skills and goals that have been developed and kind of decide what the priority is and kind of rank rank them. And then that's usually my suggestion, especially if time and resources limited. Well, I would say prioritize, but also be honest with your team. So if you don't go to your SLP and say, yeah, I practice those skills when really you didn't. Oh, and sure. Be yeah. honest and say, I need support here so that they can then modify, you know, whatever it is that they're like, modify your goals or modify what your tasks are that week in terms of your involvement with your child's speech therapy, occupational therapy, ABA therapy. I think that's where parents um, often they, they'll step back because they don't want, you know, that accountability piece um, isn't, isn't always there or they, they don't want to say, I don't know how to, how to word it without. Um, yeah. I'm thinking. You know I mean? uh, so, yeah. I think what happens is, is this similar? I, I just, as you were saying that I was thinking about like going to a personal trainer. So anyone who's gone right. to like a personal fitness trainer, right. And they said, okay, well, during the week, you know, you come once a week, let's say, but during the week, I want you to do this, you know, it's programming, right. It's the same thing. I want you to try these things. And then you go back the following week and you're like, yeah, well, I got to it. Like, two times out of the week, but I didn't get, I didn't do all of the, you know, I didn't get to all of it, but meanwhile, maybe you did it once. Right. right. And you, <laughs> but you sort of feel badly saying that you didn't do it as yeah. opposed to sort of, I think part of this is also self-awareness and self-advocacy, which I usually teach more from the, um, you know, I talk about it more from the individual's perspective, but from a parent perspective, it's also the same thing, being self-aware that, you know what, maybe I, I can't do, you know, 50 burpees every day. Like, I, mean, I yeah, just can't. Admitting, and, admitting <laughs> that it's, it's hard. It's hard. Right. You're not only running, like, it's it's a lot of work. And you got to, you know, you'd hope you'd have a team of clinicians that are there for you. But, you know, we they can't help you if you don't speak up and say, hey, I'm having a hard time. I need help. Um, right. And how know. do we kind of customize it? And then again, refine it to make it work for my right. family, my and schedule, my situation, yes. everything, so that exactly. you're still making progress with the time that you have. And and life gets busy, and it's it's not totally like it's it's easier said than done. But I think the the biggest piece is is being able to even have, um, you know, work with a team that you're comfortable saying that to, that right. you you know you don't want to cross any any you know, you don't have any dual relationships where you're, you know, they're calling you all the time and be like, Hey girl, you know, <laughs> I just finished drinks with my friends. You don't want to do that, but you want to be able to say, Hey man, like I've, I, I'm having a tough time and I yeah. need support. And I didn't, I didn't do his homework this week or I wasn't able to do this because I had all these things. And that person, you know, 10, nine times out of 10 is, is going to get it. And right. so it's just kind of trying to advocate for yourself you know, you advocate so much for your kids. And I think people yeah. forget that they can actually also advocate for themselves. Right. So. And I think you, you raise an interesting thing, too, because I, I uh, working as a team is so important as far as, you know, a family with all of the different providers and educators, uh, as well as the, the child, especially as they start to get a little older. Um, you know, I think about 
what does that look like for moving into uh, the classroom? So do you also provide or does your organization also provide um, like consultations for schools as well? Yeah, absolutely. We're not, um, unless it's a private school, we're not really able or allowed to just go in and um, do the therapy one-to-one with the child. Like usually our school board mm-hmm. doesn't allow for that. Right. Uh, but we will go in and have frequent meetings and discuss program goals and everything like that and, and what we're doing at in the clinic or in home so that they follow through as well. Um, but yeah, we're often quite involved. Uh, but when it, that's just more so meetings like team parent meetings with the uh, teacher and uh, if they have a worker, educational support worker, just to ensure that we're all on the same page and we're not reinforcing, like we're not making each other's jobs harder by reinforcing. Right. No, because that can, that can totally happen. Um, And, and similar to what you were talking about before is that the educator in the classroom can be teaching something one way and then, right. The same student goes now to their session with you uh, at your organization. And it's like, wait, that's the kid can get totally, (laughs) the kid can get really confused. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like with, I guess the same thing can happen with educators though, because I've also been the educator in the classroom where, right. I have, if I don't have, uh, a paraprofessional or an instructional assistant or all the different names we could use um, in the room to help me. And then I'm supposed to be like collecting data and right. I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, sending reports and it can be really hard Um as you know that and then managing you know 12 to 20 other students in the classroom so uh, any advice for educators on that side oh my gosh educators I want to say my my biggest advice to educators is to be open to uh, learning new methods new approaches Um, just always be open to learning and it's funny that I say that because they're the ones teaching um and you know our school boards also provide lots of trainings and different courses throughout the year but I honestly you should never be uh, against anyone that's going to be on the same mission as you are like if you I have seen this before where you're working with an educator like a teacher and you also have a speech path and you also have an ABA therapist or ABA team and you know one side or one practitioner wants something a certain way the other one maybe doesn't agree with it but they're not open to really learning more about why they want to do that and how you can work together as a team when at the end of the day you're all in this for the same thing you're all in this for the same reason we're here to help that one individual get to where they need to be and not need us anymore so don't forget what your mission is never be against someone else whether it's because they're more they make more money than you or they're, you know, they have a higher degree than you. That should never matter. It's, hey, you're doing something great. I don't know anything about it. Teach me and, you know, try to feel empowered by that so that you can also open your mind up. And that allows for more opportunities for the child or the people you're working with themselves. Um, Just have an open mind and be open to new approaches and, you know, not everything is going to click. Not everything's going to make sense. And you're not going to agree with everything, but don't bash it until you try it. 
Right. No, definitely. And I think that's true. Um, it's so funny how we can allow, you know, other sort of, and sometimes maybe it's, you know, biases we're not even aware of, <laughs> like you were talking about an educational degree or, you know, how someone else, something you heard another teacher say to you about that other teacher. Like, it's so weird. Um, and yeah, I think it's just always keeping that open mind. And I've worked on teams here in different schools where um, the liaison or the coordinator or whoever's running those types of meetings you know, always reminds, reminded everyone in the room, we're all here for this particular student, right? We're all here for the same goal is to help this particular student. So let's keep that in mind <laughs> as we move ahead with some very difficult conversations sometimes. And I also think if we are having those conversations ongoing, right? Like you said, if you're comfortable talking to your team, then anything that comes up in some of those bigger meetings shouldn't be like a surprise, I don't think. No, that's right. You, you should be able to have those kind of conversations and speak your mind without offending someone so much. It, you also have to look at, you know, some people forget when an educational assistant speaks up for their child and it gets heated, it's because they care so passionately about that child. That's a good thing, but it's not good when it causes a battle between that EA and, you know, whoever they're talking, whoever's on the other side of the table, there should never be another side. It should be like, like I said, you're on the same, you're on the same path, you're on the same mission. Um, and if you work against each other, you're not going to reach your goal. And that is ultimately going to hold back the child, which that's not fair. Right. No. And I think that's, that is like really to me that's like the exclamation point on this entire conversation is <laughs> is really how important uh the team is and everyone being open and that you're all there in the best interest of uh of the child or the student or the individual you know depending right. on who you're working with right. um so you know i know uh we're kind of getting up on time but i i know people if if they want to find you i know you're in a lot of different places how can people learn more about you your organization and what you do yeah so um if you want to find endless abilities we are on uh online on facebook instagram uh, our website is www.endlessabilities.ca um, you can find us on Instagram at Endless Abilities Inc. Inc. And then you can find me um, at the Spectrum Advocate. So uh, anyone who does stumble across my Instagram page um, and you want to be a part of the conversation or you just want to have a chat with me um, or just really tell me your story, I want to hear it. Don't hesitate to message me. I will respond. I love to meet new people and I love to hear everyone's story and stay connected so yep that's where you can find me and thank you so much for having me by the way um on the thank podcast you today. yeah and and i you know definitely you are very open to having all sorts of conversations and chatting and meeting people so i and i appreciate that you did that with me so thank you for taking the time today thank you so much okay well take care you too bye thanks for listening to autism in real life this is elia walsh and if you like the show please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. Also, if you join our email list at thespectrumstrategy.com, you can get a code to attend one of my online courses for free. See you next time.